All right, it is now time for Bavink, the Christian Family, Chapter 7. This is the longest chapter by far, so far. Um, it's certainly one of the longest chapters in the book. And uh, getting this done in an hour will be tough, especially given how much good content is in here. My goal, we'll see if I stick to it, is to be very uh, brief and concise and limited in my comments to do more extensive reading of what Bavink actually says. Um, and then maybe at the end, if I have some thoughts that I put on hold, kind of try to connect some dots and do it like that. Otherwise, this is going to be like two hours or something. And I think, especially here, just hearing Bavink's flow is is going to be helpful um i would say this is probably the most important chapter of the book so far i think this is the i saw extensive quotes from this chapter which is what kind of drew me to this book to kind of do this recording commentary on it and this chapter is marriage and family the first section is reformation in terms of christian principles so I'm just going to read what I've highlighted already and comment sparingly. Bavink says, All good, enduring reformation begins with ourselves and takes its starting point in one's own heart and life. But reforming from within can be undertaken by each person at every moment and be advanced without impediment. And so he's saying, rather than try to start at the political level or even outside of your own family, or even if you're trying to help mature your family, you have to be mature yourself first. So reformation has to begin with yourself. A still greater advantage accrues to the internal spiritual moral reformation in that it does not conflict with nature. Uh, Bobbing goes on to talk about uh, the natural good, if you will, um, of having self-control and organizing your life well, uh, that open marriage is an illusion, that free love and free sex is only going to even naturally naturally lead to um, pain and suffering and uh, not good things. And uh, let's see, further down he says, but the special revelation that comes to us in Christ sharply distinguishes uh, distinguishes natural and special revelation. Though it acknowledges nature comprehensively and fully, it nonetheless battles against sin across the entire spectrum of reality. Everywhere and always it seeks the reformation of natural life, but only in such a way and by such means that nature is liberated from unrighteousness. Christ came simply to destroy the works of the devil, indeed, but with the further goal of bringing the works of the Father once again to manifestation and honor along that route. And this goes back to that, to that grace-restoring-nature paradigm, and he's going to develop that a lot here. Uh, this explains why Scripture proceeds from the distinction between man and woman. This distinction was neither a human discovery or invention, nor a product of circumstances, nor the result of a slow and gradual evolution, but has existed from the very beginning, provided by nature itself and consequently called into existence by God, 
who placed it before our eyes as an undeniable fact. With John Stuart Mill, we can indeed say that the woman's nature is not an immutable phenomenon, but was formed gradually by the oppression committed against her. Or we can fantasize with others that the original human being was a sex, sexless or an androgynous being. But then we would be reasoning quite apart from reality. Culture can surely bring about some changes, but it can do so only within specific limits and on the foundation of nature itself. People and nations were very different from each other in various times and circumstances, but the man has always been a man and the woman has always been a woman. There's nothing mutable about this fact. We have only to accept it. It is not a work of the devil to be destroyed, but a work of the father to be acknowledged. And I think that's still true today, though some would say, well, not anymore. You know, transgenderism meeting technology and you can't even really call it medicine, it's destruction, but the ability to swap out body parts um, makes it the, the line further blurred. But even in those circles, we usually see someone referred to, well, he's a transgendered woman or he's a transgendered man, or there's still a, a disclaimer to indicate that, hey, they were not born this way, right? They were not born a woman. They've just made themselves this. And now we call them this because that's what they want to be. But there's still this reality, right? You were not born this way. You are born male or female. You're not born androgynous. You're not born um, both. You're not, you know, you're either male or female. That's, that's it. Um, and even if you change out, swap out body parts, it doesn't change altogether, at least, your uh, genetic makeup, right? It doesn't change, it doesn't change your soul. It doesn't change who you really are. But even um, if you don't believe in a soul or something, genetically, you're still something else. You're still not uh, what you claim to be. And, and, you know, even if you could somehow try to so thoroughly change your chromosomes and so on, you can't transform the soul, <laughs> right? So you are what you are. God has hardwired it this way. You can tamper with it. You can try to mess it up as much as you can, but that's, that's sin destroying nature, right? Grace restores nature, sin destroys nature. All you can do is mangle things and mess it up and trying to pass it off as advancement is deep down, I think most recognize um, that it's simply not the case. Those who were men but have transitioned into being so-called women because they feel like they were a woman trapped in a man's body I would think, would say they would have much preferred just to have been born a woman. That's why they've tried to make themselves such and vice versa, right? Meaning even their tampering with their bodies is not as good as the real genuine thing. They, they're, they're falling short of what they're trying to become. What they're trying to become is completely unrighteous, but they're still falling short of that. Um, okay, <clears throat> let's see. The next part, the distinction between man and woman. Nevertheless, we can both underestimate, underestimate and overestimate this distinction. The first defect often hobbled people in previous centuries. 
In practice, people frequently viewed the woman as being of lower order than the man, and theoretically, people often denied her the status of being fully human. And he says, over against that view, we must maintain, with the help of Scripture, which alone supplies an explanation regarding the origin and essence of a human being, that both man and woman are created in God's image, and that therefore both are human beings in the fullest sense of the term. The second chapter of Genesis presents the woman especially as a helper suitable for the man, but let us not forget that this chapter has been preceded by the first chapter of Genesis. Here we read that God created man and woman together in his image. The woman can be a helper suitable for the man only because she is his equal and reflects God's image just as image just as much as he does. The question that has been raised upon occasion in the past, namely whether the woman may be called a human being, is not at all appropriate. The woman is a human being no less than the man because she no less than he was created in God's image. Um, so scripture speaks in a very human way about the essence of God, but it never transfers the sexual differentiation to him. God is not really regarded as a woman, in other words. God is never portrayed as feminine, uh, but if the woman is said to be created along with the man in the image of God, then that includes the fact that the uniqueness and richness of feminine qualities, no less than those of the masculine capacities, find their origin and example in the divine being. God is a father who takes pity on his children, but he also comforts like a mother comforts her son. And I think there's a lot to say there. Um, one, one thing we should say is, speaking to the men, because we are men, we should, well, we should be comforters as well. Not just because that may be more central to uh, femininity, uh, more outwardly and freely and quickly expressed, and certain comfort and tenderness is especially needed and, and given, by God to women, especially dealing with children and even maybe irritable husbands as we can be, um, doesn't mean that we should not as men be comforters as well. But certainly I think we can recognize there's a masculine comfort, there's a masculine nurture, and that is what we are to exhibit and express. We are not to express feminine nurture. That that should be obvious, but I think sometimes we can get confused. And you can look at scripture and even what Bavink says here, that God himself comforts like a mother. Well, if God comforts like a mother, then maybe as a man, I should be comforting as my wife is. But no, your, your children need masculine comfort and feminine comfort. Um, God is God. <laughs> He's not a creature. We are creaturely, we are finite, um, we are not able to uh, be male and female. God, of course, transcends that. He's never referred to as a she, right? He's identified as a he. A uh, woman is fully in the image of God, and yet it is also true that she is the, the glory of man and the helper for man. And whereas man was taken out of the dust of the ground, showing that he has to work the ground and the earth and develop it, woman was taken from the side of, of Adam, of man, showing that she is to be a helper to him. Uh, so there's all kinds of, of course, differences there. But Adam and Eve are still one 
man and woman are still one. Yes, in marriage, but even by by nature, right? Because the uh, that beautiful quote that Bavink had one of the earlier chapters, you know, the the two were taken from one so that the two can become one again or something like that, right? It's it you you had Adam, man first, woman is taken from him, and then ever after man and woman pair up together in marriage. One man, one woman. And so we are you know, of the same essence. And we are both in the image of God. But we're different. <laughs> um, man is man, woman is woman. And, and, and men are masculine and women are feminine. And are to, if you want to say, lean into that or to embrace that. To not try to um, extinguish that. Um, and so, what you know, in a concrete example, what does that look like? Well, when I comfort my son who, uh, I don't know, tripped, fell down, skinned his knee up. Um, yeah, there is something to be said for men saying, the father saying, hey, rub a little dirt in that, suck it up and continuing on. And the mother having a little bit more compassion and getting the band-aid and getting, you know, the ointment and so on. Now, obviously, obviously, I'm not saying that I would never put a band-aid on my son's knee or ointment on his knee. That's not, I think you're missing the point in that. But there's a, a call, I think, for the father to tell his sons, especially, to be tough, to endure pain, to endure suffering, to press on. That is a more important duty for the man and something that he experientially, being masculine, being a man, can better teach his sons than his mother can. And the mother can teach his sons also to be tender and compassionate and kind and not to, you know, whatever, hit the sister or um, to speak kindly to women. They, you know, the father should say, don't talk to your mother like that uh, and be more stern. And the mother would show more perhaps emotion in being spoken to badly by her children. I, I'm just coming up with examples off the top of my head. And I can definitely hear screeching from some who would say, you know, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. You know, nobody sits back and thinks about this before they act. Probably we don't, and probably we shouldn't spend an inordinate amount of time on this. Um, but if you as a man, if your reactions to your children are womanly, like, oh no, you little boo-boo, it's... it's Oh, it looks so bad. What are we, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, let me get this ointment and, and, and kiss it and make it all better. Um, and you're basically taking on the role of, of, of a mother, uh, of a nurse or something. Well, the child already has that. And your, your, your son or your daughter already has that in mom. So you be the dad. And moms, you be the moms. And don't try to be the tough guy. I mean, it's even built into our language, right? Tough guy, right? Yeah. No, Mr. Nice Guy, that kind of thing. I mean, it... It's there, and sometimes we, we do have to, I think, as, as a culture and society, kind of reflect on this a little bit again and think about it and then say, yeah, I do need to be, need to be this way because God has called me this way. You know, Jesus talks about uh, gathering children like a hen gathers her uh, brood. And again, for God, for Jesus, you can speak that way. Jesus, yes, as a man, even in his God-man, in his being and his humanity can speak that way and, and, and men can be tender as well. And I'm not saying that a man can never even conceptualize um, with such analogies of a, a, a hen, a mother hen or something. Uh, but there's still 
a masculine uh, way of, of, of being like that, of doing that. And it's hard to put your finger on, I suppose, sometimes. But in other ways, it's just you can see it and it's plain. <clears throat> um, I don't want to deviate too much. and I'm already taking a long time on this and I said I'd try not to, but I just think this is important. Um, if you listen to some of the Revoice conference speakers, and if you know about that, maybe those listening don't, it was a conference and basically those who call themselves Christians who were formerly openly homosexual, some of them, are now celibate, but really they're kind of sort of like celibate homosexual Christians. They call themselves celibate gay Christians. Um, and they call that faithfulness. But most of them, not surprisingly, are super effeminate in their mannerisms. They are still very externally gay. And their voice, their pitch, their interests, all of it is very girly. And the problem is today, many are saying, well, that's just preference. That has nothing to do with holiness. You know, just as they say that heterosexuality doesn't have anything to do with Holiness, really. It's it's not about heterosexuality. It's about holiness. It's about, um, you know, your Bible study or something. Well, of course, we got to study our Bibles, but part of being holy is being rightly oriented in your affections and especially in, including your sexual affections. <clears throat> so I, I would encourage you to check out this lecture sometimes if you can stomach it. <clears throat> Listen to these men talking. And you tell me, if that's faithful, you tell me if that sounds um, like people who are genuinely repented at heart over their vile passions or homosexual desires, as Romans 1 calls them. What I would equate this to on the other end is um, if you look at a man who has been, maybe he wasn't a Christian and he was just at strip clubs, he was a very vile, pagan, you know, he lived it up sexually. He's the kind who sees a female jogger and whistles at her and says inappropriate things. Well, let's say, here's the gospel. And so he, he says he's repented and believed in Jesus and trusted in him. But you notice that around women, he still acts the same way. He may not quite say the same words. He might pull back a little bit, but he still gives some of the same suggestive looks. Even some of his words are kind of suggestive. And, and, and you can just tell that it's still externally there, even though he's not acting out on that now. He's not going to the strip club. He's not sleeping around but his old mannerisms are still in that mold. Would we call that faithfulness? Would we call that repentance? Would we call that conversion? No, we would not. Uh, we might call that, you know, man-willed, man-powered reformation, but not spirit-wrought transformation from the inside out. And I think a lot of this revoice stuff is like that as well, and we can apply that to Bob Inc.'s conversation here of, you know, even if you've never if a man or a woman has ever considered themselves homosexual, if their mannerisms are, you know, for women, very manly and for men, very womanly, it's still sinful. And it, you know, can be a lead in even perhaps to 
homosexual desires. Okay, let's let's continue. Um, another point that Bobbing brings up that's very important here. I mean, he just rattles so much off that you could, you could spend hours and hours just on this own chapter here. Um, because of this unity of human nature, then, the well-known saying is not entirely true that claims that the man is incomplete and half a person without the woman and the woman without the man. It is true only insofar as each is viewed separately in his or her own particularity. But the expression is less correct when one thinks of human nature, which is common to both. Each of the two is complete as a person. You know, you're not as a man, half a person, or a woman, half a person. It has to find your other half a person to make one person, right? When the two become one flesh, it's not like the two halves become one flesh. It's the two persons become a greater unity without even losing their person, right? It goes back to, to the two in oneness, the unity and diversity, even there reflecting something of the triune nature of, of God himself. Um, now, you know, of course we would say that God would not be God if, if there was just one person, but God, you know, that's, that's where the, the analogies fall apart. And if you go too far with it, you're going to get into some kind of Trinitarian issues and heresies and stuff, right? I mean, God was never separate persons that became one. He's eternally three in one. Um, obviously, even Adam was not, Adam and Eve were not eternally, or even at the moment of creation, um, you know, two, two in one. There was the one Adam first, and then God even gives them commands, right? And then there's a, a helper, and Eve made from him. Um, now, Eve was always made from the man, and so always is to go with the man. And I think there's something to be said for that about the uh, authority structure and the headship that God has given um, uh, to the woman, which she is under the man. And literally made under his arm, if you will, out of his side. Um, but you know, there's 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 similarities and differences even into the marriage relationship, even as it pictures Christ and the church. Um, obviously, it isn't Christ and the church, and obviously, man and woman together as one is not the same thing as the, as the Trinity. Um, they're pictures, but they're not to be pressed into every last detail because it, it doesn't work. It doesn't. It's not made to be like that. God transcends all of his pictures, all analogies, all types and anti-types, right? I mean, all of it um, still falls short of the glory of God in the sense that everything that is creaturely cannot express the fullness of the beauty and wonder and splendor of the eternal transcendent holy God. And so that beatific vision of seeing God, seeing Christ face to face and you know, knowing him as he knows us and that, in one sense, it is true that everything else just pales in comparison at that point. Um, but another sense, it's just going to continue, I think, to elevate and lift all that God has made up because all that he has made will now be seen with a whole new set of eyes in glory when we see the Lord face to face. Um, well, that's just getting further into stuff and maybe even a little bit speculative. But <clears throat> anyway, it's fun to think about those things, even though not much has been revealed about the exact nature of heaven for us yet. Uh, it won't be until we are there. Anyway, um, Bavink says, Man and woman each have a soul and a body, a mind and a will, a heart and a conscience, a spirit and a personality. 
mean, men are not Spocks and women just emotional messes that we have to balance each other out. I mean, there is tendencies, and, Bo and Bobby's going to get into that, but we, we both have minds and wills. Uh, we're not devoid of one or the other. There's no single capacity of the body and no single quality of the soul that is exclusively unique either to the man or to the woman. Each of the two has a fully human nature and is a uniquely independent personality. For that reason, the question is so difficult to answer as to whether the woman possesses less of an aptitude for some activities and functions than the man. For although understanding and rationality, head in hand, undoubtedly function in a different way with the woman than with the man, that does not at all imply either a different or an inferior aptitude and is not at all identical to inability. And, and you know, I don't know if there's too much to say about that. We're speaking in generalities, of course, we have to. Um, but my wife is five foot nine and, you know, some ethnicities, typical men are shorter than five foot nine. Now, having said that, the men are still generally going to be stronger than my wife or, you know, some women, basketball, professional basketball player women are like six, three, six, four or whatever. Yeah, they may be stronger than some weak, physically weaker men, um, but not, not really a whole lot. And if you're pointing out to the very rare exceptions, I don't know, you know, that you're not proving something, you know, contrary to nature with that. Um, you're just pointing out the extreme exceptions to things. So the military and combat and that kind of thing. Um, if you get too woke, and so you have to have, I don't know, 50% of your military to be women or something, or if we're paying reparations for all the years that we didn't allow women or limited them in the military, so we're going to go, you know, 95% women, well, then we're going to all be doomed because the women are not going to be capable physically uh, and probably even mentally and emotionally to endure um, war. I I've never been through something like that. I have a friend who has, and others who I know have and yeah you know war is hell and war is awful and think about the PTSD that men experience how much worse that would be for women I mean there, there are clearly some things that just aren't suitable for women and there's some things that are much less suitable for men too um, you know Bavik admits that it's difficult to always pin down exactly the differences uh, and boundaries if you will uh, for men and women and, and the, the distinctions that are there. He says judgments span a wide range and it requires no artistry to arrange alongside one another the contradictory opinions of those of those with profound understanding of human nature. Down through the centuries and among all nations, among philosophers and among the unreflective masses, women haters have exchanged places with women worshippers and men uh, and men have hardly remained constant in their own judgment, but frequently move from the one to the other extreme. At one time or another, the woman is an angel or a devil, a queen or a vixen, a dove or a serpent, a rose or a thorn. The feminine is identified as divine and then again as demonic. The man kneels before her and worship, only then to pin her under his foot. Frequently, the conclusion is that the woman is a riddle. The man does not understand her, and yet he often understands her even better than she knows herself. So there's paradoxes, there's confusion. Um, we, we have to admit that um, some of these things aren't as clear to us as they could be. 
but as you'll see, they're a lot clearer than we make them out today. Uh, and Bob, I think, is going to talk about that. And he says, nevertheless, the, the distinction exists. And it is set in terms of its main features as well. There is outward difference <clears throat> between man and woman in terms of the body and of all its organs. Difference in the size of the head, in the development and weight of the brain, in the tint of the skin, in the growth of hair, in the shape of breast and stomach, in the form of the hands and feet. Difference also with regard to the strength and tone of the muscles, the sensitivity of the nervous system, the gracefulness of movements, the color of the blood, the flow of tears, the pulse rate, the sound of the voice, the multiplicity of needs, the capacity to suffer, the weight and strength of the body. In her entire development, the woman is closer to the child and reaches full adulthood sooner than the man. And what does that mean? Women don't develop the same amount of physical strength. They're not as hairy. <laughs> uh, their appearance is more soft and moldable. And um, it's just a truth that women have, I think, you know, the average body fat of women is higher. Um, but God has, has designed them that way. It's, it's, it's closer to the child and they reach full adulthood physically, puberty, all that. I think even uh, mental development sooner than the man. Does the man reach greater heights physically? Of course, I think so. And in some ways, intellectually, I think, again, generally, yes. Um, it's not to say women are stupid. It's not to say you can't find a woman who's far smarter than a man or a woman that's far smarter than me or that she can't develop expertise in a certain area and far excel men. It's not saying any of that. Um, and I, I haven't looked up the studies on IQ. Um, you know, what is the average IQ, IQ of a man versus a woman? I'll look it up. And of course, Google doesn't want us to find out very quickly. I don't know, some, somebody who knows can look it up or if I post it somewhere, they can comment and get the data or I'll look it up later. Um, you know, but I, I think certainly we can tell and Bob, I think we'll talk about the differences of uh, strengths and weaknesses, even intellectually. I mean, there's some things that men can do better that, that serve certain intellectual uh, gifts better, maybe a straight line logical uh, train of reasoning and thought better than a woman, but a woman can uh, experientially and emotionally reach greater depths and understanding and empathize better in general than the man can. And, and, and both are forms of, uh, done rightly, I would say wisdom, uh, applied rightly, um, to, you know, something to attain, knowledge, insight, ability. And um, so there's differences, but, but we need each other and they, we, we balance each other out. Uh, let's see. This has always kind of interested me and Bob Inc. kind of briefly touches on it. He says, no less important is the distinction between man and woman that exists in the, in the life of the soul. People have said that the soul has no sexual differentiation, but even though the nature and capacities of the soul are the same for man and woman, they function in a different way. By means of observation, the woman acquires sense impressions more quickly and retains them longer and more deeply than the man. Her imagination is characterized by greater liveliness and quicker connectivity. Her thinking and evaluating are characteristically more visual than analytic. 
attaching more value to the amenities of life than to abstract principles and rules. She seeks truth preferably along the route of an idealizing view of reality rather than by the method of conceptual analysis. With the man, the volitional capacity is more logical, more capable of persistence, more persevering in striving for a goal, but the woman surpasses him in forbearance and patience in the capacities for suffering and adapting. And again, I think, does not nature bear this out? Uh, just playing the averages here, I don't think we can really dispute this. I do think in this climate and culture where we're trying to intentionally go against nature and almost make these things not true, right? It's almost like, I don't like that this is true, so I'm just going to try to make it not true and untrue. So I'm going to be a homosexual, I'm going to be a transgender, I'm going to be very emotional and flamboyant as a man, or a woman's going to be very strong and show that she can be just like the boys, but you're just play acting. That's not really what you are or who you are, and you're just, you're just pathetic when you do that. And it's, it's ugly. It's ugly. It's not genuine. It's, it's, it's put on. It's, it's, it's a, a sinful decision. And I think that's why when we get to this place where we're, we're allowing people to say that they're born homosexual, they're born a certain way. No, you're not. You're not born contrary to nature. Right? God in his fallen world has preserved a natural order. And he certainly preserved what a man is and what a woman is. Put all different bodily you know, defects and issues aside. There's still man and woman. And there's still men made with desires that pertain to being a man and, and desires for women that, that pertain to the woman. Now, with our sinful hearts, we suppress that. We, we suppress our masculinity. We suppress our femininity as women. And we, we make it look like, perhaps, that that's not the case, right? But that suppression always finds a way to evidence itself that it's, it's con we're acting contrary to nature. And so it always leaks out one way or another. Um, and just again, throughout history, um, what, 98% or 95, you know, a tremendous amount have been what we would call today heterosexual and so on. So let's continue. Um, and this distinction uh, of I'm sorry, the human nature given to man and woman is one and the same, but in each of them it exists in a unique way. And this distinction functions in all of life and in all kinds of activity. Already the outward appearance of the woman makes an entirely different impression than that of the man and has an entirely different significance for her than for him. Clothes and jewelry are less important for the man, but with the woman they are an important part of her life. For that reason, people often call women, women the fairer sex. And look, I... I I think it's perfectly right to say that God has designed women for beauty. Their physical makeup is, is more for beauty than utility. Uh, it's more for nurture and care and comfort than for building things and, you know, pounding. And, and, and you know, that's why I talked about in the other episode, boxing, I think we should all be able to say, is not something that women should be involved in. Um, I would, I would be willing to listen to arguments on the other side of that. Um, but that's just not particularly what the women, the female body is, is designed for. Um, men's are, relatively speaking. Now, does that mean that men shouldn't care about their physical appearance at all because they're made to be tough? No. Does that mean that women cannot express physical strength in any way? No, it doesn't mean that either. The swooning, fainting, Victorian-aged woman 
um, is also a mischaracterization, right, of, of femininity. And, and Bavink says, you know, women are called the fairer sex. That entails no insult, Bavink says, as long as it does not intend to portray the masculine sex as the ugly sex. For just as the description of women as the weaker sex, 1 Peter 3, 7, does not imply that all forms of weakness are combined in the woman, right? Women are the physically weaker sex. It doesn't mean in every sense of the word, in every way possible, that they're weaker. Uh, there are some things that women, you know, they, they just have a greater forbearance and patience with the young children than certainly than I do in my household. Um, they can be stronger in other ways, right? So just as the weaker sex does not imply that all forms of weakness are combined with the woman, similarly, the description of women as the fairer sex does not imply that all beauty has been bestowed on the woman. The man is beautiful as well. Only an unhealthy school of thought relating to beauty and art acknowledges no higher beauty, as if there's no other beauty, than that of a naked female body, time and again abusing her in various seductive and hideous poses as though she were nothing more than an ornament. Right? So women's bodies can be more designed for physical beauty, and they are ornamented with you know, makeup and nice clothing and jewelry and so on and so forth. But that's not all that the woman's body is designed for. Obviously, <laughs> it's designed for childbearing. Uh, there has to be a certain physical strength to even that very act, of course. Uh, anyway, such an unhealthy school of thought also entails that people no longer have an eye for the beauty of the man. Yet, such beauty exists as well. It is a different beauty, quite surely, but of no less value. It is the beauty of loftiness that the man embodies, even as the beauty of comeliness is the possession of the woman. But both man and woman are beautiful. Both display the features of the image of God in which they are created. Right? Beauty, but a masculine beauty, Bobbing is getting at, and then there's a feminine beauty that the woman is getting at. Right? If a man tried to be beautiful by putting on a dress and makeup and jewelry, that ain't beautiful, man. <laughs> uh, and if a woman tried to be show strength in the way that men do, it's it's not really that attractive. I mean, you know, um, obviously being just fat and out of shape and overweight is not attractive in the male or the female sex. But certainly, I think women are going to put more stock into the strength of a man than a man is going to put into the physical strength of, of the woman. And we understand there's, there's, there's reasons for that. Um, also, I mean, is there anything more repulsive than a female bodybuilder that's like, you know, loaded up on steroids? It's just, it looks like a woman, a woman's head on a man's body. It's just, it's just, it's, it's terrifying. It's not natural. Exactly. It's not natural. Um, and he says, he goes on, Bobbing, to the man belongs the strength of physical prowess, the wide chest, the commanding eye, the full beard, the powerful voice. To the woman belongs a delicate shape, sensitive skin, full bosom, round shape, soft voice, long hair, elegant carriage, and supple movement. He engenders respect. She engenders tenderness. In terms of beauty, Michelangelo's Moses is not inferior to Raphael's Madonna. I think that's a really helpful way to put it. Um, you know, they're, they're, both are beautiful in their own way. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that we should 
it's not me, it doesn't matter what I think, you know, God's word doesn't want us to blur into oblivion these distinctions. That's why we talk about soft men and hard women being bad. Similarly, the woman is constructed differently than the man in terms of religion, intellect, and morality. The same laws of logic and morals, the same religion and morality apply to both. The man is not intellectually superior to the woman, and the woman is not morally superior to the man. But how entirely different each of them takes hold of religion and morality, art and science. The man sees in religion, first of all, a duty. The woman considers it a pleasure and a privilege. And, you know, I, I suppose that's probably the case. Um, that particular argument I've not thought about as much, or uh, line of reasoning I've not thought about as much. Um, I think we're both called to see uh, our Christianity, our faith as a duty and a pleasure and privilege. Um, but I do suppose that I consider it a, a, a duty first and foremost. I don't really know if my wife considers it a pleasure first and foremost or not, but, you know, Bob Bing talks about that here. For the man, the good functions more in the form of justice. For the woman, it takes the shape of love. The man wants justice and law. The woman, sympathy and participation. That, for sure, is true. The man strives for the truth of an idea. The woman pursues the reality of life. Um, yeah, and he goes on to say, therefore, both each must be on guard for a particular set of sins. Uh, the man must struggle to not force his principles and press upon others every possible consequence. Uh, the woman must wrestle continually against her deficiency in logic that is manifested both in rigid tenacity and incorrigible willfulness. By, by the way, I think I saw one of the feministically leaning ladies in our reform circles quote just this little paragraph out of this book to show how much of a woman hater Bavink was. Um, you're getting much more of the context here, and I think you can see that it ain't so the way that he's being presented um, as well. So let me let me read it over again. Accordingly, each must be on guard for a particular set of sins. The man must struggle against forcing his principles and pressing upon others every possible consequence. And the woman must wrestle continually against her deficiency in logic that is manifested both in rigid tenacity and incorrigible willfulness, as well as in a fickleness that defies every form of argument. You can't pin down the woman sometimes because she's swinging back and forth she can't make up her mind her emotions are changing men can do that too but yeah generally speaking that's especially true in the woman and someone like amy bird in her replies to her book is it's just bearing that out she can't help but do it because she is a woman and she doesn't even recognize that that's occurring um but the way she responds um, is as a woman would when she's trying to take on some of the um, authority and duties that men in ministry and theology are, are, are doing. I won't say any more about that right now. All right. The man is susceptible to the danger. So just continuing the same paragraph here, by the way, of Bobby. The man is susceptible to the danger of doubt and unbelief, rationalism and dead orthodoxy. While well, the woman risks no less a danger of superficial piety and superstition, mysticism, and fanaticism. The loquaciousness of the woman contrasts with the incommunicativeness of the man. The vanity of the woman is no worse than the coarse indifference of the man. The infidelity of the man is matched by the stubbornness of the woman. 
Indeed, man and woman have nothing to hold against each other. Each has quite glorious virtues and each has rather serious defects. There is room for neither disparagement nor deification with respect to either of them. You may not like all that, but I think the general thrust of what Bobbing is driving at here is, is absolutely borne out in nature and in scripture. The problem is that uh, many uh, who disagree with this are saying, look, you're, you're just rattling off, look at nature, look at facts, but we believe in the Bible, we're Christians. And so there's like a hyper-biblicism sort of that, that is going on with that. You know, a lot of these ladies are pedo-baptists. They believe in infant baptism. But we know that that's from good necessary consequence, you know, logical deduction from Scripture, from its overall teaching and trajectory. There's no verse in there that explicitly says, baptize your babies. <laughs> All believing parents must baptize their children while they are babies because children are in the covenant and the Reformed Baptists are wrong. I, you know, there's no Bible verse like that. Obviously, that would end, end the discussion. Um, the word Trinity is not in Scripture. That too is, is deduced, um, certainly from the teaching in Scripture. And so, you know, obviously the whole Trinitarian doctrine is not um, conjured up merely out of creation and nature. Though something of God's eternal power and his Godhead is revealed from nature, as Romans 1 says. So there is something, um, even of the triune nature of God, that is shown in creation, in nature, by the way. Um, but nevertheless, yes, man suppresses that knowledge and, and it, it gets through only very imperfectly at best, apart from regeneration. But nevertheless, it's still there and various philosophers and such can, can you know, pagan philosophers will touch on things that have a certain degree of, of truth at a superficial, not all the way down to the roots level. Well, if we can recognize all of that, then why can't we recognize this here? And when, you know, the Bible says things like, does not, does not nature teach you that it is a shame for a woman to, you know, not have long hair, to have short hair, uh, to, or to be shaved or shaven? Uh, or, or actually, it's the opposite, isn't it? I think the scripture passage actually says the opposite, that it's a shame for man to have long hair. Um, nature teaches us, you know, why is it a shame for man to have long hair? Because his head is not to be covered because of the head of the home, but because women have long hair and, and, and their hair is given to them as a natural covering. Uh, that first Corinthians 11 passage and, and, and elsewhere. So God himself refers to does not even nature teach and it's his nature. And so we can't be afraid of that. And, and even in a, in a fallen world, recognize that nature still gets through to the pagan and to the unbeliever to some degree, to some extent. And if it did not, if you think it doesn't get through at all at any level, then, you know, and, and yet you think we can still have society when most of the world is still pagan. You're just, you're, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> right? Uh, if God gave man completely over to delusions where they couldn't ascertain anything good or decent from creation and nature itself, uh, boy, there would be no civilization at all. There'd be only plundering and killing and, and harming uh, like we've never seen. Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah on steroids. Anyway, um, there's no way I'm going to get this done in an hour, so you're going to have to bear with me if, for an extended episode here. Um, oh, I was going to look up what was that verse. Well, 
I'm sure I'll come back to it. Let's go on to the next section, the unmarried state. So Bobbing's talking about now how we are to live and behave prior to marriage. Um, and he says the unique, the uniqueness of man and woman make the one indispensable for the other. Now again, keep these comments in balance. Earlier he said a man by himself is a complete person, a woman by herself is a complete person. So you can cherry pick quotes and make it sound like Bob Inc. Is, is, is a moron, as you can do with anybody's writings, as people do all the time with scripture, with God's own words. But I'm trying to give you as much as I can here so you can see the full picture. And it's, it's a faithful one, a good one. Each of them, man and woman, is in their own way incomplete. Well, okay, he's checking himself as well. See, that's why I should just keep reading and shut my mouth. Each of them is in their own way incomplete, not as a human being, but as a man or as a woman. The man finds in the woman his complement and his corrective, and conversely, the woman finds in the man the very same things. So as human beings, we are, we are complete. As a man, we need woman, and as a woman, we need the man. I think you can even make an argument that those who are going to be single their whole lives, if, if it's a single woman, in general, she needs men. And a single man still needs women at large and in general. Not to mention the mom and the dad that they have that they need, but even beyond that in society and so on. We we need both balancing each other out in the world, fulfilling their each their unique callings. Without the woman, the man easily becomes insensitive, dissolute, egocentric, and without the man, the gentleness of the woman degenerates very easily into weakness, her love into sentimentality. Um just as she cannot dispense with his independence and strength, he cannot be without her dependence and tenderness. Marriage is thus grounded in the nature of both. Human beings did not invent marriage, nor was marriage introduced by the state, nor imposed by the church, but it was provided along with human nature and instituted by God himself with the creation. Again, Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone, God said in the beginning, and therefore it is and remains so. It's still not good for man to be alone. The fall did not somehow overturn uh, a good before the fall, which was that man and woman need to be together. Like, good and evil don't get turned upside down. Uh, for this reason, Holy Scripture knows of no prohibition against marriage. A proscription for anybody, for any priest or prophet, for any apostle or teacher. Scripture condemns those who forbid marriage, and in this respect, Scripture is directly opposed to every kind of asceticism. Um, material reality, the body, sexual differentiations are all, are all of divine origin. Um, in Holy Scripture, there is no prohibition against, but only a command for marriage. There's never this restrict, restriction. Um, and, and as I've said before, if there's no fall, I don't think there would have been any... Per I mean, we all would have lived forever without any sense of death. But all would have married eventually, and I think all would have married sooner than later. But... You know, so, 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 I mean, I've heard some say, or at least seem to imply, therefore, that singleness is a curse. Um, I'm not so sure if I agree that it is a 
curse. It, it's certainly a fallout or a result of the fall. It is um, a curse in that sense. But if God has called you to be single, there are certain unique, um, yeah, I would say advantages to that as well. Now, do I think it's a more blessed condition to be married? I think the Bible makes that quite clear. I don't think what Paul's teaching or even Jesus' singleness overturns that. But I think we'll talk about Jesus some here. It says Jesus himself was unmarried and speaks of such people who assume for themselves the obligation of abstinence for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 19, 12. And Paul says that there can be circumstances in which it can be better for someone to remain as he himself was. So one cannot and may not say that for everyone, marriage is always an indispensable condition for reaching one's des destiny. Just as marriage usually leads to having children and a childless marriage is not for that reason without benefit and purpose, so too it is the usual path for an adult man or woman to get married. But if someone sees the route to marriage blocked, they are not for that reason missing their destiny. And I think that's that's true, um, but it's still a loss. Uh, it's still it is not good for man to be alone, and that's just bottom line. Even if God gives someone this this calling to singleness, it's still at the loss of a spouse, and that's still a real loss. And there may be some advantages, as Paul says, you know, uh, the one who's not married. Uh, he does not have to care for his wife. He doesn't have the cares of the, of the world. And so there is this greater calling and freed up time to, well, to do other things and especially kingdom work type of things. Um, and that's, of course, true. The only issue I take with that is it makes it sound like getting married, be fruitful and multiplying and having children and catechizing them and teaching them and discipling, discipling them isn't kingdom work. It, it is so much it's in the woofer right it is straight up in the middle of kingdom work it is uh, the heart of building up christ's kingdom and so it's really a false dichotomy to say you know well they have their family but i have you know church work or work for for the kingdom well Raising a family is kingdom work. Now, are there other aspects that can be, that single persons can, and those who are perhaps called to celibacy or whatever you want to call it, have the gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy? Um, do they have more time to do other aspects of ministry? Abs of course, absolutely, no doubt. Um, you know, Paul and Jesus himself were, um, what do you call them? when they provide their own way financially and don't take money, uh, tent makers, tent ministry, uh, you know, they, they were dual income, multiple jobs. Why is this escaping me? This, this word for this anyway. Um, you know, Paul does this as, as an example to the people to, you know, work with their own hands and earn their own living. But just as singleness, I don't think is, uh, the paradigm for us. I don't think that kind of ministry model is the paradigm either. And I think some people I appreciate uh, may disagree with that a little bit. Um, Michael Foster, uh, I know, has talked a lot about 
you know, having other streams of, of, of income and not working, you know, not making your primary money in your ministry so that you're, um, and, and more people have talked about this too, so you're not, so that you are anti-fragile, so you're not totally have all your eggs in one basket. Now that I agree with, but I don't know if we can legitimately look at Paul and Jesus who did not have families to provide for uh, in their unique situations as something that should be normative. And, and, and maybe these guys I'm talking about wouldn't say it's normative evil either. It's just um, in this particular time, very beneficial because of the state of the church. And with that, I can, I can kind of agree. Um, good luck holding on to your job if you want to speak out strongly against um, some of the real sins in the church today. Anyway, um, I need to see how much time we have here. Just a couple minutes, and then I'm going to have to restart it for the next section. And I do promise to try to wrap this up in the next 30 minutes or so. Bobbin goes on and says, Marriage does not belong to the essence of being human. Although unmarried, Jesus was a genuine and complete human being. And without any defect, he completed the work that the Father had given him to do. And that's absolutely true. Now, he did, as I said before, he did have a bride. It was the bride of Christ. And, you know, Jesus is a completely unique figure. Um, but Paul's not completely unique, and he was at least not married during his ministry time. And um, there is no absolute obligation, certainly in this fallen world, to marry. Um, again, unless you're called to it, unless you're burning with passion, and then you should. Um, and most of us are. And burning with passion doesn't have to be seen as merely a sinful and negative and dirty and terrible thing. Uh, it can also be a sign, it is a sign, that you're called to, to marriage and that fruitful life uh, with your spouse. It's a blessing. You know, burning, in a real sense, is a blessing because it gives you a great clarity on what you're called to. Now, are there obstacles and hindrances to that? Are those who've been divorced and have been burned by previous marriages and maybe before they were Christians and so on more hesitant and more emotionally scarred? Yes. Do they need to get to a certain place before they pursue marriage? Yes. Um, but I would not say that they should necessarily abandon all thoughts of being married um, if they're still burning and they've prayed about it and strive. But, you know, God has said, look, you know, I'm not taking this away. Um, even if you're past the childbearing age to have a desire, a burning desire for the opposite sex, that's a calling to love them. As men, for you men to love them as Christ loved the church and for women to be a helpmeet to a man. And so pursue that. Don't, don't try to pretend it's not there. Uh, it may be hard work, but it's a high calling and it's a glorious calling. Um, anyway. Yeah, he says we can't defend the preaching that, that declares marriage to be necessary for every person with a view to a person's sensual nature. In their day, the reformers placed heavy emphasis on this in response to the immorality prevailing everywhere among the spiritual class and in the monasteries. In so doing, they did nothing different than what Paul declared, that because of unchastity, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, and that it is better to marry than to burn. Only prudishness can blind the eyes to the immense power of sensuality. And uh, that's absolutely right. Um, Still, one must guard against overemphasis on the other side by saying that marriage is necessary for everyone. With that, we're going to pause here and I'll pick this right back up 
on the other side. All right, we are continuing with Bavink on the Christian family, chapter seven. This is the second part of the recording for chapter seven because I've taken so long and the chapter is very long. I think this is going to pick up right where part one left off. If not, I'll have to, I guess, make it arranged that way. But let's continue. Uh, Bavink is talking here about, you know, not, not everybody's called to marriage, but it's definitely the norm and we need to teach it as normative. Um, while some doctors in his day and time, and still, of course, even more so today, would say, well, it's not healthy for a man to not have sex or a woman not to have sex, so this abstinence thing is just foolishness and dangerous, and, you know, they need to just be able to express these outlets in sinful ways before people are married, and so on and so forth. You know, more recent medical experts acknowledge that it actually isn't damaging, but of course we would know that from Scripture anyways. Um, you can be faithful uh, in, in chastity and singleness, even if God calls you to that for to that for an extended period of time. It's very difficult. Few, if any, are perfectly chaste in their minds as well as in their actions and bodies. Um, but it's what we're called to, and to some real degree, it can and should be done. Um, it, it, you know, there's no sin, right, in which we are fully sanctified. It's not that we are um, not sinless, this side of glory, but we're also still sinful in every aspect and area of our being. It's not like a video game. Well, I've leveled up completely on greed. I, I, I can, I'll never be greedy again. Now I've got to focus on jealousy. Now I've got to focus on stealing. Now I've got to focus on lust or anger. It's not like you can get all except one area completely sanctified this side of heaven you know no we, we we don't even teach that we teach that you you fall short of the glory of god in every aspect even as a believer of your of your being every the seven deadly sins every lustful thought every angry outburst the most sanctified man in any area is still a sinful man and still falls short in that area and still God could put him in a situation where he would fall to pieces and ruthlessly murder or um, sexually assault somebody even the most pure and holy man in that area it, it, it it's just the reality as Paul says that which I hate I do in Romans 7 and I would encourage you to read that he says who will deliver me from this body of death and I certainly believe Paul's speaking there as a believer, and it's a longing, well, ultimately for the return of Christ, the redemption of our bodies, the renewal of all things, so that our lusts are altogether completely obliterated, and we will not sin anymore, or even be tempted to sin, or have any sinful desire in our heart. But until then, we got to mortify the flesh in every area, and repent daily, take up our crosses, and die to self in every sense of the word, in every area, in every arena, always, constantly. It's a struggle. It's a battle. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, as Galatians 5 says. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do what you really desire to do. You're always somewhat compromised. Man, how wonderful it will be when Christ comes back and that isn't our reality anymore, huh? So, yeah, um, you know, we, we, we can't expect sexual sinlessness perfection prior to marriage but just 
by the same bill, we don't have a license to sin in that area and then ex should expect to get married. And that's as if that's okay, right? I'm certainly not going to tell my children, just live it up and rein it in and you'll be fine. No, that's what the world says. The world says, you know, sow your wild oats, live sexually promiscuously. And then when you get past your 20s or something, then settle down and start a family. As if all of what you did in your teens and 20s, all that immorality and giving yourself over to sin is somehow going to just, you know, like a valve, just be shut off when you get married. And all of a sudden you're going to find yourself faithful. No, you got to strive for faithfulness beforehand, before you're married and in your relationships. And in, you know, when you're with the person you're about to marry and you're engaged to them, you got to strive for purity and sexual fidelity. But you also don't want to lay uh, an impossible burden on yourself or on the other person. If you ever have a momentary lustful thought, um, that doesn't necessarily disqualify you from, from marriage. Or if there's a momentary temptation to, to do something that you shouldn't, right? With, with every other sin, we recognize there's this ongoing battle. Um, are you mortifying the flesh? Are you growing in holiness? And have you reached a certain level of sanctification um, in this that you can show yourself and evidence this that you will be faithful uh, in your marriage. And so I'm not really for long engagements or, you know, a long dating period, as certainly I think you can ground that argument in scripture, but also for me, it's just experience. I knew my wife in May of 2012. We were engaged in October of 2012, and we were married in December of 2012. So seven months of knowing her before we were married. But even then, Believe me, I mean, even that test is a trial and a test of your commitment and your faithfulness. So just to get real down to it, man, if you're dating a woman, are you texting other women? Repent. That's sin. That's ridiculous. You know, same thing for you women. Are you flirting with other men while dating a certain man? I mean, there's pretty clear practical things that you should be able to see in yourself and in the person you're with that if they're doing this now, why would I think suddenly when a ring is thrown on it that that's necessarily going to lead to faithfulness all of a sudden? If you're not really being very faithful in the dating relationship, you're not going to be faithful in your marriage. You're setting yourself up for adultery and just don't do it. You're not ready to be married if that's how you are. And if, so, if you're ready to be married and you're showing yourself faithful, but the other person really isn't, even if it's just their mannerisms, you know, they're a little bit flirty with other people. They're, you know, you can just sense something's not right. You got to confront them on it. And if they bristle at that, don't marry that person. <laughs> don't do it. Don't regret it. You know, I mean, I dated somebody in high school and, you know, it felt like a long time at the time. It was just a couple months. And then yeah, you get cheated on and it feels terrible. I mean, it, it that stuff will be revealed fairly quickly. So get things right in your dating relationship and in your engagement, and then things will go a lot smoother. Bobbing talks about that kind of stuff as well. Um, now, this is an interesting... Oh, this is not it yet. Um, let me just read what Buffing says here. He says, a person can be called to wage such 
um, a struggle. Uh, history, especially modern history, yields innumerable examples of that. Jesus demanded that people leave all for his sake, needing to hate and even lose one's life for his sake. In the administration of his providence, God often called many men and women to deny themselves when it comes to marriage and to crucify the flesh with its desires. You may have this burning passion, but it's, it's just in God's sovereignty and providence that satisfaction that marriage is delayed for a long time, or even in some rare circumstances, you may never marry. And it's a heavy cross to bear. But God will give you strength to, to bear it. But it is a burden. He assigns to people the duty of performing their vocation and pursuing their life purpose, not through, not through marriage, but outside of marriage. Surely the cross that he places on their shoulders is heavy. People not called to such self-denial often make it worse by heaping insults upon unmarried people and selecting them to be the object of their bitter scorn. Yeah, we, we shouldn't do that. That would be ridiculous to married folk to mock unmarried folk or something. It's not good. Um, he skips down and says, Nevertheless, even though celibacy can be permissible and obligatory in particular circumstances, for man and woman, marriage is still the usual route. It's the norm along which they perform their calling and work toward their improvement here on earth. Um, let's skip down some. On all these experiences, marriage sets the crown. It is the apex of human life, the ultimate goal of years of effort, the victory after a long struggle, the destination of a long preparation. When the groom brings the bride to his home, then love celebrates its most beautiful triumph while heaven and earth lift up their song of blessing. And that was kind of the tail end of like this really lofty, powerful, you know, presentation uh, of the beauty of marriage and, and, and pursuing it. It's the blossoming of the rose in the garden, the appearance of spring in the course of the seasons, the rising of the sun in nature are no more beautiful than the opening of the human heart to the luxuriousness of love. And, and it's, it's true. I mean, I've been married seven and a half-ish years now. It's been certainly full of trials and various hardships. But it's been the most wonderful and beautiful thing with five children too. And that's part of the beauty for sure. I wouldn't trade this for nothing. It's been the hardest time of life, but it's been the best time. And I couldn't uh, imagine not being married to my wife and the blessing that she's been to me has been the most tremendous blessing that I could possibly imagine. You know, and the only thing that even approaches it is the blessing of the children that God has given us from that blessed union that I have with my wife. And, um, you know, it's clear in Scripture, nothing is should be closer, humanly speaking, than the bond between husband and wife because it pictures the ultimate highest bond of that between Christ and the church. And so the love between the husband and the wife ought to exceed even that between the parents and the children. Right? The bond for marriage is for life, but the children will leave and cleave and find a deeper bond in their spouses than their parents. That's the way it ought to be because that's the way that God has designed it. Sadly, a lot of marriages get messed up on that too, and they live through their children more than each other, and it messes things up. Um, Bobbing says, you know, after this rosy picture of, of the honeymoon, the novels, the books usually end, but now in the day that he was coming up in, and I think in some ways our age too, 
it's less idealistic. It gets more realistic. And, you know, it pictures the ugly side of marriage and says, hey, this exclusivity and bobbing touches on this. You know, the culture today says exclusivity is, is garbage. It, 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 this just sucks, man. You know, that's the attitude that they have. Why, why would I want this? Why would I want to have to be committed exclusively? You know, the, the fairy tales aren't true. It's hard work. I married a sinner. <laughs> and so free love, free sex, free this, free that. Just go your own way, do your own thing, enjoy your freedom. That's the way. Marriage is a... Uh, a shackle, a slavery, a confinement. And so Bavink talks about those who will would even lie about adultery in his day because you needed to have some sort of adultery to even get a divorce back then, right? Uh, because they actually had a better biblical view of, of marriage and divorce, that there had to be, like, you know, adultery to break that bond biblically. And even at some level, the civil government, even just, you know, apparently a hundred and some years ago, reflected that much better. But you see the wickedness of man. His heart said, well, okay, let's just say we committed adultery so we can get a divorce because we hate each other. And so then what did that lead to? Well, it just led to no-fault divorce, an easy divorce. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see how things... How, how do we get to where we are today where we could divorce for almost anything? Well, because when it, the, the restrictions were higher, people would find loopholes or just lie. You know, my dad has told me about, you know, those in the military who will just get married so they can have better housing arrangements, don't have to live on base. They just get married for a time as purely, a, you know, an arrangement so that they can have better housing. They may not even be at any sense physically intimate with each other. It's just, it's just a piece of paper so they can get this and then they divorce after that. People do this kind of stuff. Um, what else? You know, Bavink says, once the couple have each other, once they're first married, then for the first time begins the test as to whether they will keep each other. Right? Until after this part. You got each other. Welcome to the beginning of this great journey. You must see it through to the end. Just like someone who is baptized and, you know, they're brought into the church. They're in the covenant. Well, that's... You know, look, that's the beginning. Now, a genuine saving faith, one who's born again, will never fall away. But how do we know that we won't fall away? How do we know that we're in the faith? Well, the evidence of the fruit of our lives, the good works done by the power of the Spirit, bears that out. But without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. And, and it, the Scripture says we will reap eternal life if we do not give up hope, if we keep persevering, if we remain faithful. Um... Well, how do you know that your marriage will persevere to the end? Well, if you remain committed and love your spouse and trust one another and work through the issues, well, you can know even now that you'll never divorce. But, you know, I mean, you can be quite sure of something, but the heart is deceitful. And so we have to keep fighting for holiness and fidelity in our marriages as well. Um, and, and Bavink really brings it out. There, there are people by the thousands bound to each other for life, right? Married each other, who are more a curse than a blessing to one another, and who in their marriages are all are already living a hell on earth. When the best gets corrupted, it becomes the worst. Love that wanes becomes hatred, and affection that dissipates gives way to aversion. 
when marriage loses its delight, it turns into unbearable drudgery. Right? Think about the contentious woman and it's better to live on the corner of a housetop as Proverbs and so on talks about. Right? Solomon knew that well with all of his wives and his sin. <laughs> he, knew, he knew that all too well. And, um, you know, whether he, he had all those issues when he wrote Proverbs or not, he certainly came to know it all too well. You know, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's just kind of amazing. But that's, that's the reality. I mean, think about our covenant our relationship to God. The blessings of the covenant are the best, eternal life of the Lord. The curses of the covenant, hell, the wrath of God, are the worst. Well, marriage, same thing. Healthy, good marriage, it's the best, the highest blessing. When it turns sour, it's the most bitter taste. It's the most painful and difficult thing. And so don't enter into marriage lightly, right? Don't enter the church and come before the holy God insincerely. Be a genuine believer. Be a genuine, faithful Christian. Be a faithful spouse to your spouse. Um, all right, skipping down a little bit, Bobbing says... Um, All deliverance is naturally expected then from social and political reform, talking about political changes here, but conscience speaks a different language within every person who seriously examines himself and ventures to confront this moral reality. Such a conscience lays the blame not on the institution of society and state, but on the person himself. You are the man, right? As prophet Nathan said to David, you are the man with his sin with um, Bathsheba, the adultery and the murder. That is how the prophets and the apostles spoke, right? You are the man. This was the teaching and example of Christ. Just like the entire moral law, marriage is wise and holy and good, being of divine origin and rich in blessing for the human race, but human beings have invented many schemes. Right? But, but marriage stands or falls by your own faithfulness and, and effort. It's not, you can't blame structure, society, ultimately you have to blame your own self. We have to stand before God as individuals on Judgment Day, and we can't blame structures in society for our sin, or even our ethnic group or our culture's sins, but ourselves. And apply that to marriage as well. It's, it's up to us to be faithful. The choice of spouse and courtship. That's the next section here. Uh, Bob Inc. says, this situation... Oh, yeah, he's talking here about um, in Bible times, you know, marriages were virtually often just arranged by the parents. And he doesn't say that it has to be like that all the time, but it was a good arrangement. Um, but, you know, it was, it was the business of the parents, the family, and the tribe. It was initiated by the parents, and it was directed by the parents. Genesis 24, 20, 28, 1, 34, verse 11, and 38, verse 6. Now look, Bavink recognizes that this situation ran the risk that parents failed to take into account the inclination of their sons and daughters and exercise domination over their heart and hand already during their adolescence. But however, it's just the opposite, and the, the children are, are more inclined to just completely disregard their parents' wishes and guidance and counsel and authority um, and just blow them off for whatever they think is right and could lead into 
serious problems. Now, look, I... This is probably how it goes for everybody. When you're younger, you want to be able to have the power and the choice, and you wish the parents didn't have as much say. And when you're older and you're becoming the parent, you see more and more of the wisdom of the parent's hand in this, and more and more... You do want that authority because we always want to be in control. And I don't want my kids just to go off with some schmuck or some harlot or whatever, you know. So um, it's easy to play it both ways like that. But I do think in hindsight, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, my wife's parents would have considered, I think, what Jocelyn and I were doing as, as courting. I don't think she and I saw it as much as courting. And it was a very loose courting thing by some courting standards. I mean, it was basically dating once I was approved. Um, but there was a process. I had to sort of win the family over. And I think that's healthy and good. And, um, you know, if I did not receive the blessing from the parents they would have impressed that upon Jocelyn and would have said, no, you cannot date this guy, this man. Um, thankfully, the things that they demanded were reasonable and I passed the test. <laughs> um, but I think it is good to have some tests there. Now, if they were unreasonable, I don't know. I don't know what we would have done. Uh, I, I am inclined to think that we just would have tried to work through it, but wouldn't have given up and eventually just would have said, we're going to get married anyway. Um, and I do think parents can transgress their authority or just be very foolish. And so then, you know, they say, well, you're going to get married, but it's not with my blessing. It's not going to be with you living under my roof. And so be it. Um, you know, and, and so that there's, Parents could really mess things up, but also the children can mess things up at times by not listening to their parents. And so there's a delicate balance there. But the parents should oversee things to some extent, certainly, and especially the father of the daughter. And why? Well, because the father is the head of the home and the daughters are um, going from under the authority of the father to under the authority of the, of the man they're marrying. And the man... Uh, the, the boy who's becoming a man and is leaving the father's home. Again, Adam was formed first and was independent. And so the, 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 the man can much more easily and biblically leave the home as a single person and then go find and leave and cleave and find a wife. Whereas the woman was always made from the beginning with the man and so belongs with the man and in the home. And again, I've already said, I don't think that means necessarily even then that there's an absolute requirement that, you know, a woman in now into her late 20s or 30s or whatever, uh, single through whatever, for whatever reason, has to always remain uh, in her father's home. Uh, but should, I think, even if she's not under her father's home, remain uh, under her father's authority. Uh, the father should be giving permission. Yeah, you can live in this apartment, you can live in this place, but there still needs to be a fatherly protection of the daughter, and that's going to be difficult if, if, if the daughter's moving far away, you know, ordinarily. Well, let's keep going. Um, so, choosing a spouse. 
Bavink says, certainly great significance may be attached to the affection of the heart, as long as it is genuine and not merely a flush of infatuation. But such affection does not exclude taking into, into account one's confession and personal piety, age and status, health and suitability. In sum, according to the admonition of the apostle, a Christian may marry only in the Lord, that is to say, in fellowship with, according to the will and with the approval of Christ, who is our only master and Lord. So, what Bavink is saying well, let me keep reading. The young man and young lady who have committed themselves to each other must be able to thank the Lord uprightly for bringing them together. That is the proper marriage in which the husband confesses about his wife and the wife about her husband. I did not choose him or her by means of my understanding, but God granted him or her to me. He has led this man, this woman to me as though with his own hand. So there's a providential guidance, but notice the balance here. It's not like the one. There's only one out there for me. The one is the one that you marry. The one is the one who God has indeed providentially brought to you, but it's not a magical warm fuzzy that you have to feel deep inside. If you're going off of that, you're, you're, you're being foolish. It doesn't mean that if you feel nothing for this person that you should marry them either, by the way. But as Bavink says, you have to take into account everything. You have to take into account your own Confession of faith, your personal piety, your holiness of you and your spouse, of the age and the status, of the health and the suitability. Is this a good fit? Right? Women, can this man at some level provide for you? Or, you know, if it's a very, very extremely modest provision early on, do you think he has the character and willpower and godliness to, to work a stable job and to work his way up and to provide for you? sufficiently over time and and because you're going to need greater needs as yeah as your family grows i mean believe me um jocelyn's father had to look at me and and, and conclude well he will grow in his financial provision because i didn't have much you know uh by way of savings or by job prospects i mean i'm a bible college student working at mcdonald's right and then the first six months of our marriage, um, you know, 95% of the work that at that time was done by um, income work was done by Jocelyn. So it was very rough early on, but God has provided. And I kept, you know, seeking and striving and having gainful employment. And God has blessed that. And uh, I've had to do it over again, though. I would have worked more in high school and saved up more money. And yeah, I mean, I, I just wish I could have come into a situation better, in a better financial situation, um, because I did rely, we did rely on more so my wife's savings early on, um, and also my parents' generosity than my own work and sweat um, of savings prior uh, and um, I don't necessarily think it was sinful at that point, but I do think I didn't work like I should have prior to that, especially in high school. And I do regret that and really think I should probably repent of that as it's, it's, it, it wasn't right. It was wrong. Um, He talks about the engagement time and says, look, here's the time to really, you know, learn self-control. Um, 
and to learn how to what it's going to look like to to live together. He's not talking about cohabiting or anything like that before he married, but it's a really good time to to you know as a restriction of freedom um, that calls for patience and self control. Engagement is the forecourt to the sanctuary. It supplies a sacred right and at the t- same time imposes an enduring duty. Although it is surely better if during this time of preparation they must break up by mutual consent and for good reasons, uh, for it is better to turn back after going halfway rather than to travel all the way by mistake. Nevertheless, it is irresponsible the way in which many young men before or during the time of engagement play with a girl's heart like they're playing with dice. And I think in our culture today, men can do that and women all the more can can play with men's hearts and because just women have greater freedom um, in culturally uh, in relationships as well too. Engagement corresponds to its purpose only when it prepares for the fellowship of marriage. It is absolutely not simply an opportunity to get to know each other's virtues, but just as much and perhaps even more importantly, it is a laboratory for beginning to learn to tolerate one another's faults. It brings into balance both the expectations of marriage and the disillusionment disillusionments from marriage when two people are going to unite with each other for life then they must not imagine that it will always be roses and sunshine without a cloud in the sky no thorn growing along life's pathway i have some friends who dated for years before they were married and i guarantee you i don't know if i've ever asked them this explicitly but i guarantee you that they will say you know before we were married I thought I knew my spouse all the way, but we got married and wow, we found out a lot about each other that we didn't know. It's just, it's impossible to know it all before you're married. So you have to know that. You have to know that you won't know it all. You have to know that that there's going to be struggles that you never expected. That there's going to be disagreements and deep conversations and maybe even raised voices at times and tears and pain and inner turmoil in your marriage very quickly that you did not even anticipate. You have to know that it's going to come beforehand because you can't know what they will be over precisely. You may have an idea, but you won't know precisely. But you do have to know this, young single people, that they will come and they will come quickly and they will come, you know, not like once or twice in your marriage. And it'll be more or less, depending on the marriage, for a bazillion different factors, but even the healthiest marriage will have conflict and painful, you know, conflict. But if, if again, think about it. If marriage pictures Christ in the church, does the church and Christ have conflict with one another all the time? Because the church is sinful. Now, that's not to say that the wife being the church is, you know, the only one who ever sins in a husband-wife marriage. It's all the more because... Man is a very imperfect picture of Christ. And even the woman is an imperfect picture of the church. And there's going to be sin. There's going to be conflict. That's the point. you got to be ready for it. If you go in thinking, oh, I know this person so well. We're both so exceptional. It's just going to be a, a smooth ride. It's going to be a long slide is what it's going to be uh, into reality. And hopefully you can save your marriage at that point. But it, it, it's, it's not going to go well. Um. Let's see. No Christian, Bavink says, no Christian says that the person is corrupted by marriage, but he confesses that marriage is corrupted by the person. 
The modern realist blames the circumstances, the institutions, the laws and ordinances, ultimately God himself, while the Christian finds within his own heart the source of all impurity. Again, it's not the institution of marriage, as culture wants to say. It is the heart of man and the man and the woman in the marriage that causes the problem. All right, sins to which husband and wife are exposed in married life. And we're getting close to the end here, I promise. To those adversities and crosses that overcome those who are married belong not only the various risks of life, disaster, and accident, sickness, and death, need, and misery, but to these belong also the faults and sins that married people need to put up with in one another. Often husband and wife are each other's cross. I mean, think about that. And if the wife is not the husband's cross, but the husband the wife's cross that he or she must carry, then each one, sorry, each has one or another quality that is a disappointment or an irritation to the other. But I think saying, look, you're either crosses or disappointments. <laughs> and that's just reality. I would not call my wife the cross, the thorn in my flesh. That's not a happy marriage. And I don't think, I know my wife wouldn't call me that either because we talked about this today when we read through this. But look, I think we have, my wife and I, a great marriage. I would stack my marriage up against anybody's marriage that I know. And I would hope most people would be willing to say that. <laughs> um, and say, look, we got the best marriage. We got a great marriage. We have so much joy and delight in, our, in, our, in each other, in our family. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love my wife. She's the deepest blessing. I thank God for her every day. But we both would recognize that there's disappointments that we have with each other and we irritate one another, right? Do you think brothers and sisters bicker and fight? Yeah, they do. Now, you know, I have a much older sister who we never lived with in the same home, but even when she would come to visit when I was younger, we'd bicker and fight. It didn't take long. It's natural sibling rivalry. Well, you know, Brothers and sisters aren't married to each other, but they're around each other all the time, and they're around the same age, and they're having to learn how to deal with, with their gendered differences. Well, something of that is true, um, you know, in marriage as well. You're the same age. You're having to deal with some of the same things. Obviously, there's a different relationship there, but there's, there's similarities there, and it, yeah, it, 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 there's going to be irritations. <laughs> And not just those different gendered irritations, but irritations of, of, of intimacy, right? Because your husband and wife and marriage. I'm not just talking about, you know, in the bedroom irritations, um, though every marriage is going to have its own disappointments and irritations there too, certainly. But just, just overall trying to be a good husband and not doing it the way your wife wants or your wife not doing what you want. And just there's always going to be these things that are there too. And so you have to constantly grow and fight. Marriage is a battle. It's a glorious battle. It's a delightful battle. But it is a battle. And if you're not fighting, then you're not loving. And again, what do I mean by that? You know, that could be taken out of context. I don't mean fighting in a physical sense. I don't mean fighting in a constantly antagonistic sense. But you're striving for that holiness. You're striving for that that bond with each other to be deepened love and it, it takes on a manifold form 
and it's hard to explain if you're not married, I guess, to, to someone who's not married. But if you are married and you know anything of a happy marriage, you know there's this ongoing battle and, and struggle, but it's good. Because you love each other and you're fighting for each other because you love each other. The, the, the man is the head and the wife as the, the helper, the helpmate. Now, Bobbing touches on something very important here. Um, he says, who's ever found a husband or wife who corresponds entirely to the other's expectation or corresponds fully with the ideal that one had formed in his imagination? It doesn't happen. In marriage, the virtues find an especially favorable opportunity to unfold and be developed, but the faults and weaknesses are also nowhere more clearly exposed to the light is in the intimate circle of the family, right? Brothers and sisters do fight the most. Family fights the most because we're always around each other and we do have that deepest bond. And so when there's a little, even a minor rift in that deep bond, it can be, you know, a very annoying thing. Um, no deeper bond than husband and wife, so apply it to that. Many a husband who appears great and strong in the eyes of other people is weak in his home, petty and narrow-minded. Because you can put up a front much more easily to somebody an acquaintance or even a friend or even those at the church but the front is gone at home because you you have to always live and abide with your spouse and your children so that's where who you really are comes out and that's why your patience runs thin most easily in the home because you're around these people all the time and, and you reach a breaking point um and many a wife who seems like an angel when she's visiting others in her own home is a pest to her husband who shall comprehend such wandering in marital life and in the sphere of the family? And who shall count the sins committed so often by husband and wife against each other? It's true. Um, but God gives grace and the tender moments and the good moments are so frequent as well. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Now, Bobbing touches on particular sins here that are more central to the man and then the ones that are more central to the woman. And for the man, I think it's obvious, the great sin to which the husband is exposed in marriage is infidelity. The honeymoon period is soon passed and when the wedding dress and veil are put away, so too the beautiful illusions. With many, love gives way to coldness, coldness to indifference, indifference to neglect. And the husband who once swore to his love with the most precious of vows seeks the diversion and the satisfaction of his desire in a bar or a club and with another woman. Brothels are patronized mostly by married men. That's, that's a very sad reality. Um, I mean, there's a lot that could be said, but we're running out of time. But your love can grow cold. And that's why if you're not fighting for your marriage, it will grow cold. And you get more and more dissatisfied because you're not fighting for that satisfaction in your beloved any longer. When husband and wife stop fighting for that, the love will grow cold. It'll grow stale. You'll get tired of each other. And it's going to be more and more easy and natural to find that intimacy in somebody else. And that's a recipe for disaster. Or in the world today, it's a good recipe for divorce and it's about time. And people are just like, yeah, we had our fills, good run. We made it, you know, five years and had a couple kids. Yeah, you know, we're moving on. Got tired of each other. It's sick. But that's what people do. Um, yeah, what? Does not Jesus Christ keep fighting and striving in us by his Holy Spirit to present 
to himself, us spotless brides, without spot or blemish? Is not that what the husband on earth is called to do with his wife, to, to, to sanctify her by the washing of the word? We've got to keep fighting, men. Wives, you've got to keep encouraging your husband to keep striving for that holiness. We've got to keep working together for that. And he says, the great sin to which the wife is so easily liable and against which she must struggle is stubbornness. Right? Stubbornness, insubmissiveness, not listening, not learning, not obeying. I know, I said it, obey, just like God does. Um, you know, the wife, <laughs> uh, think says, the consent of the wife signifies that she declares herself to have been gained and won, that she is giving herself in the fullest sense to the man of her choosing. I mean, think about that, men. When a wife agrees to be your wife, she is giving herself to you. Any good wife knows she's a helpmeet. She knows she's coming under your headship and your authority. You've won her. She loves you. She is fighting this battle with you. Your calling has now become her calling. She has a calling, but it's through you, and she wants it to be with you. What a love she has. Just like the church's calling is, is their calling, but it's only in and through who? Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Well, the wife is hitching her wagon to you and to your kingdom, husband, man. So don't let her down. Don't disappoint her and give her good work to do in this kingdom. And your kingdom, of course, ultimately is to build up the kingdom of God. It's, don't misunderstand. And ladies, think about that. Don't give yourself to an unworthy man, but to a godly man and a mature man and a man who's working hard already so that you know he will work hard for you and somebody who you can enter into his labors with as a helpmeet to him and press on and, and enhance his labors and be satisfied in them. Husbands and wives do this. It is, it is good. It's glorious. Um, so Bavin goes on. Yeah, she is giving herself in the fullest sense to the man of her choosing. But this promise contains more and is more difficult to keep than many a wife thinks at the outset of marriage. Right? When we come to Christ, he's perfect. There's no disappointment in him, no, not even the possibility. But when you marry somebody, especially wives submitting to their husbands, you are guaranteed to marry a, a, a sinner, a disappointment. <laughs> You're guaranteed it. What a hard calling, but what a glorious calling the wife has. So women, it requires, Bavink says, it requires immense continual self-denial. And she easily comes to think that she wishes and demands of her husband um, that, that the wishes and demands of her husband are unfair and unreasonable. This danger threatens especially when the husband is chosen, not out of love, but for the sake of his status or office, or worse yet, if the woman enters marriage in order thereby to acquire a position within society. Then the husband is almost ranked after the housekeeping, the children, furnishing and clothes, the glamour of the salon, and the yearning to please others. Even though outwardly the form is still preserved, inwardly the distancing has already occurred, and she withholds from him everything pertaining to her soul and body over which she has power. She withholds her affections, her love, her interest, sex itself, and drives her husband further and further away to the path of sin and shame, 
And so there is this symbiotic relationship that if the woman is pulling away, the man is going to feel that resistance and he's going to drift away. Or if the man is looking elsewhere, then the love is growing cold and the woman's going to drift away. We have to always be, you know, revolving around one another as we're upwardly looking to Jesus Christ. Um, you know, some have described it and it's really helpful, you know, if... Um, man is regarded as planet earth and the woman is the moon then the moon is revolving around the man as both are revolving around the sun and the sun is god or christ and i think that's a pretty healthy way to look at it as long as you don't lose sight of both of you ultimately are revolving around you know christ himself but the woman as a helpmate is is oriented around her husband as as they are both oriented and revolving around Jesus Christ. Um, you wife, Bavink says, be submissive to your own husband. Remember that the man is the image and glory of God, that he was made first and the woman was created from him and for him, that not he, but the wife was the first to transgress and that the wife must be obedient to the husband as to the Lord Christ and as it is fitting in him. And verses for that, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 9, Ephesians 5, 22 through 23, Colossians 3, 18, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15. Uh, let's see. This admonition in Scripture is fortified even further with a twofold addition. The first is this, that the wife must show obedience to the husband so that the word of God might not be blasphemed on account of her. Titus 2, 5. For the same word prescribing obedience for the wife also commands obedience from children toward their parents, from the servant toward his master, from the maid toward her mistress, from the citizen toward his government. If the wife is disobedient toward this word of God, then she is setting a bad example for her children and servants, and she is also provoking them to disobedience. This evil works its way out from the small sphere of the family throughout society and the state and undermines the foundations of both. And so feminism destroys society, and that is where we are, guys, a hundred years after Bavink wrote this, where feminism is running all authority and submission structures amok. Because at the most intimate level between husband and wife, if it goes awry there, where it should most naturally and tenderly be expressed and found, if husband and wife are butchering it there, then, then it's going to get butchered elsewhere. It's going to have a ripple effect everywhere. The other edition points out that the wives who, in accordance with the command of the Lord, are submissive to their own husbands, will perhaps, by their behavior, win these husbands to the Lord. Men who, through the preaching of the word, were not brought to faith. 1 Peter 3.1 when the husbands see the power of the word in the life of their wives, they too, then they too will surrender to that word and glorify the name of God. That's the power that a godly woman with a quiet and gentle spirit has. That her very actions, you know, show something of the aroma of the gospel and can lead the unbelieving spouse to see the impact of the gospel on, on his wife and lead him to faith and repentance as well. Man, this chapter's longer than I remembered. <laughs> boy, oh boy, we're going to come close to two hours. I do apologize. 
I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you break this up into a couple pieces and get through it and find some good nuggets amidst my rambling. Next, the subjection of husband and wife to the command of God. Um, it just says the human heart always opposes these admonitions of Holy Scripture, you know, in our sinfulness. Uh, the husband refuses to honor the command to love, saying that he cannot love a wife who has so many faults as he sees in her. The wife refuses to be obedient to a husband who is so unreasonable in his demands and so tyrannical as she has come to know him. Both exert pressure for multiplying and easing the opportunities for divorce. And so, yeah, many today, he says, live in open relationships. They're not really committed. And then they just do that easy divorce that I talked about by, you know, lying about even committing adultery. Um, and he goes on. He says, if you abandon this path and begin again to live according to God's commandment, if you turn back to the right way, if the husband once again loves his wife and the wife is once again obedient to her husband, then unity and peace and love will return. Then the marriage will be established, the family renewed, the wife restored in her honor, society reformed, the state reborn. From the family outward, blessing and prosperity will once again spread across all the nation. And I've really just begun in the last couple of years, I mean, I've believed this at some level and I've tried to live it out, but seeing it more deeply, I didn't have all this, and I'm still learning, but I definitely didn't have all this at the beginning of my marriage. And I've come to see it as such paramount importance for Christianity, for, for godliness, I mean, if you can't get husband and wife, man and woman right, what can you get right? Even within Christianity and even further in society. we got to get this right. Um, and yeah, Bob goes on. He says, genuine obedience includes righteousness and genuine obedience is the demonstration of freedom. Right? We, we go from slaves to sin to slaves of Christ, but in that slavery to him, to serve him, we have freedom to flourish in obedience to God because we are now free and freely submitting ourselves to his good rule and providence, which is good for us, which is for our good, which is where true freedom is found within its proper boundaries. Freedom is not boundless. True freedom is stays in and flourishes in proper boundaries. Anybody who thinks other, otherwise is a fool who, if he were consistent, would deny the reality of evil altogether. Because we recognize and know there is sin and there is evil and there is destruction. And so true freedom must be free from that which is destructive, sin, wickedness, evil, pain and suffering. So true freedom is within the boundaries of actual flourishing and puts walls up and guards against destruction and pain and suffering and sin and wickedness. The problem is that people, really the issue is that the unbeliever doesn't see sin as sin, but sees wickedness as, as goodness. <laughs> so they see boundaries too, it's just inverted, it's just turned on its head. Uh, Bavink goes on, thirdly, Scripture declares that the love of the husband 
for his wife and the obedience of the wife toward her husband must be shown in the Lord and as is fitting in the Lord. Colossians 3.18 Again, the wife does not submit to her husband when he commands her to do wicked and evil things or if he's abusive and beats the living daylights out of her or just treats her like an animal. I'm not saying that gives her an immediate path to instantaneous divorce, but I am saying it definitely gives her recourse to legal protection to go to the government and to go to her elders and for the elders to rebuke the husband and call him to repentance. And it may well lead to legitimate grounds for divorce. Um, but just because the husband says, okay, on Wednesday I want you to make spaghetti, and the wife says that I don't like that, obviously she has to obey. I mean, you can say, well, what kind of husband would demand that? Well, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. He certainly has the authority to do it. And the wife has the duty to obey, and it glorifies God. All right. Um, uh, Bobbing talks about her highest calling is to Christ above all. That you know he do, he condemns divorce so strongly, but nevertheless also can demand that one would forsake husband or wife, parents or children, house or field for his sake and follow him. Within marriage as well, one must obey God rather than people. Consequently, the husband's love and the wife's obedience are limited to the things that are right and fair. And, and so wisdom has to be applied with that. And the wife, believe me, the wife has every right, you know, lovingly and kindly, but really and truly to say to her husband, you know, honey, uh, whatever, cooking this meal... Um, is difficult for me because such and such, or um, I'm not able to get groceries today at this time because I am sick, or, you know, the wife absolutely should and must speak up when there's legitimate concern or need. And the husband absolutely must and should hear that and take that into consideration. And if in his judgment, he rightly, you know, if in his judgment, he recognizes, okay, this is not something that she can legitimately do right now. He should not require it. Uh, you know, that, that should go without saying, but it does need to be said. The essence of marriage, Bothink says, lies in the full and complete communion of husband and wife with body and soul together for all of life. For that reason, it is monogamous, the bond of one man and one woman. Polygamy denigrates the woman into an object of sensual lust and corrupts the family. Right? God has one chosen people. Marriage reflects that. One man, one woman, you can't bring in multiple partners and have that intimacy still. It, it, it just disrupts it. And I think common sense tells us that as well. A man with multiple women, how can you say, I have this love for you and you alone? You don't. You have it for you and however other many you're married to. Or if there's a woman married to multiple men, that, that really meshes up the headship thing. Because you got multiple heads and one wife. It's really twisted. <laughs> That's why if you see anything, you typically see one man with multiple women because you still have one head, but it's still, it's still wrong. Um, all right, well, let me just close with this last paragraph in this chapter, and then finally, we will be done. Bavink says this, How then can people speak of marriage as a contract that can be terminated and broken at any moment? 
In its essence and according to its nature, it is just as unbreakable, unbreakable as the bond between a mother and her child. It is the most intimate, the most profound, the most tender love that binds husband and wife from every side for their entire lives. It is a moral institution that nurtures, enriches, and perfects both husband and wife. Church and state neither invented nor instituted marriage. They can only validate it before God and before people. Marriage itself is of divine origin. He established the law for marriage, a law that binds every person, as well as the church and the state. He created it as a reflection of that most intimate fellowship that he in Christ enjoys with his church. And he has destined it as a sacred estate wherein people nurture and prepare each other for the kingdom of God. And so I hope overall, on balance, for those who are not married, this is an encouragement. Marriage is hard, but it's the highest earthly delight there is. Outside of salvation, there's been no greater blessing than being married to, to Jocelyn. And I would trade everything, absolutely everything, to be married to her, apart, of course, from my salvation. And the same thing with my children. I would trade nothing in the world for them. You could not give me a billion, trillion dollars, all the mansions in the world, for even one of my children. I love them all. I could not ask for anything more than my wife and children. They are the greatest riches and delight that you could possibly have. Scripture extols the virtuous woman as greater than rubies and gold. I mean, if you look at the book of Proverbs, the, the, the wise life, the, the well-ordered life, get wisdom, get a godly wife, and get godly children. Right? Get the Lord and, and know Him well. Get a God, God, good and godly wife and know her well. And get good and godly children and know them well. And enjoy God, enjoy your spouse, and enjoy your children. Women, find a godly man. Same thing. That, that is where the blessings are. Sacrifice for those things, for wisdom in the Lord, for a godly wife, and for godly children. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't sacrifice children and delay marriage for the sake of money or ease or pleasure. The true pleasure is in marriage and with your children, serving unto the Lord for Christ and his kingdom, glorifying him in that. That is where the true pleasure is found. It's hard work. It almost will guarantee that you'll make less money, but it'll be worth it. Because you'll be someday, Lord willing, with your wife and children in heaven. Perhaps not married anymore, right? But you'll still have an intimate bond with them and you'll all be there with the Lord. And that will last forever into eternity. Right? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, God says. Well, your spouse and your children redeemed in Christ are treasures in heaven. But money in your house, in your little mansion or whatever, isn't. So as scripture says, better a morsel of dry bread where happiness is found with laughter in the home than a mansion with bitterness in the home. So get married, get wisdom, get understanding, get a spouse, get children, love the Lord, go serve your king. All right, next time we'll be on chapter eight. And we're finally over halfway through the book, believe it or not. It seems like we should be further than that because we only got three chapters left. And the next chapter, chapter eight, is family and nurture. And I do pray and think I will make those shorter that one shorter than two hours. Thank you for listening. God bless.